is For Me Podcast. In this podcast, we're back with Joan Rimmer, reading Viking Village, the story of Formby, published in 1973 by Edith Kelly and the Formby Civic Society. Viking Village by Edith Kelly, Chapter 9, Life, Work and Leisure. Two World Wars. The 1914-18 war now seems remote and in many ways it could be thought of as the end of an era. It took a high toll of life and caused an immeasurable amount of misery in the world. It saw the end of trench warfare and with the first Zeppelin that sailed over Britain, the beginning of aerial warfare, which played such an important part in the next war. People who lived through it find it difficult to say how it affected them or their times. They think of the loss of life, the generation of young men who perished. They remember the difficulties of rationing at home and the work of the women in the fields and factories and in the auxiliary sections of the army. But the most moving reminiscences are of those who served in the trenches in France or in countries far away from their own little town. The war memorial in the village was built on land given by Mr Charles Weld Blundell and the people of Formby themselves subscribed for the simple stone cross. The memorial and the land surrounding it were conveyed to the Formby Urban District Council and their successors for all time. The unveiling ceremony took place on Sunday, November the 12th, 1922 and was performed by Lieutenant Colonel John Formby. Recorded simply by their names are the deaths of 120 Formby people who died for their country. One of the names is of a woman, Jane Murray. Six of them are from the Maudsley family. Of the three Aindos, one John is distinguished from another. John by the description Boathouse. Many other families lost two or three of their sons. 120 men out of a total population of 6,000 is a sad loss. Behind this memorial is another to the memory of the men killed in the Second World War. On this semicircular stone wall, which fits in so well with the central cross, are inscribed the names of 68 more Formby men killed between 1939 and 1945. In St Peter's churchyard facing the roadway, another memorial of the First World War is in the form of a white painted wooden cross with a small bronze plaque in the centre which bears the names of eight men killed on September the 3rd, 1916, near Ginshi. This action was part of a decisive battle which enabled the British forces to break through the German defences on the Somme. The cross was originally erected by brothers, brother officers outside the advanced dressing station there, where the men were buried. But since they belonged to the 12th King's local regiment, the cross was later brought home by their relatives and re-erected in St Peter's churchyard. The second war of 1939 to 45 brought war home to everybody with the bombing of cities throughout the country. Formby was just far enough from Liverpool to escape the terrible destruction that the port suffered and just near enough to be closely involved in all that happened there. Some bombs did fall on Formby. Two houses in Cars Crescent were almost completely demolished. Others were hit and bombs fell in the pine woods. The powerhouse was camouflaged and in 1941, 
The lighthouse was blown up as it was thought to be a useful guide to enemy planes looking for the Liverpool docks. In the north of Formby, an army camp was built known as Harrington Barracks. Many people gave what help they could in feeding the wives and families of soldiers when they came at weekends to, to visit the camp. And the WVS and the Red Cross Society were kept busy too. Evacuee children were brought out from Bootle and Litherland and housed in Formby. During the worst of the bombing, people from the city flocked to Formby and other country areas where they spent the night sleeping in church halls, private houses and any place where a bench or a floor was available, returning to work in the devastated city the next morning. The end of the war saw also the beginning of a new period of growth in Formby. There had been a spurt of building between the two wars, but the great expansion came, of course, after the Second War, when gradually the village nucleus, with its many surviving thatch cottages and large Victorian houses, became ringed round by housing estates built for young married couples with young families, and most important, at least one car per family. A great deal of agri agricultural land was taken over for housing and the composition and average age of the population was radically changed. Many of the farms and some of the market gardens disappeared under bricks and mortar and Formby became a dormitory suburb of Liverpool, inevitably losing much of its former character. Agriculture and industry. One of the activities which suffered from the encroachment of housing on agricultural land was the growing of asparagus. This crop was grown on the South Lancashire coast even in the 18th century, for Nicholas Blundell makes several references to his asparagus beds. However, it is believed that the seed sown by the Formby family in the late 18th century was brought over from France. It was grown in many fields in the coastal area between Wicks Lane and the golf course, and there was some also on the southern boundary and some in the north near Woodvale Aerodrome. The combination of sand and salty atmosphere is said to be ideal for the growing of this crop. A well-known grower in this century was Mr Jimmy Lowe, who had a farm near the shore and nurseries on Liverpool Road. He succeeded in winning the World Challenge Cup for asparagus in 1930, 31 and 32. He had a stall at the corner of Cross Green and Altca Road where in the centre the silver cup stood proudly for all to see. Now there are only three asparagus growers left, and it is possible that in a few years' time asparagus will have disappeared from the Formby scene. The soil is becoming drier as a result of drainage operations near the sandhills, and the available land is scarcer as new houses reach nearer and nearer to the shore. There is also a shortage of labour in the farming industry, it is unfortunate that such a delicacy should be crowded out of an area so well suited to its growth. On the other hand, the cultivation of mushrooms is on the increase in Formby, so perhaps we may soon see a silver cup for the best mushrooms. Fruit, vegetables and flowers grow well here in spite of the sandy soil. Vegetables are now grown chiefly on the moss outside our boundary, but there are still nurseries in Formby itself. In 1880, the first agricultural show took place here. It was organised probably at the suggestion of Miss Anne Formby, who had formed the Cottage Floral Society. 
The show was housed in a large tent on the cricket field and the cottagers were encouraged to bring their garden flowers and fruit. Miss Formby was one of the judges. In 1885, on the day of the flower show, an indoor exhibition was also held in St Peter's School in Paradise Lane. It was called the Home Art and Industrial Exhibition. At this show, prizes were given for girls over 14 and women, calico shirt with linen front, over 70 years of age, knit stockings, and another was given for cruel work. Soon these activities were absorbed by a much larger body, the Formby Horticultural Society, which organised its first show in 1886. The president was Mr John Formby, the secretary Mr R.J. Hurd, and the treasurer Mr E.C. Lowe. Mr Formby, who had recently taken up residence at Formby Hall, opened the show and the Formby band, conducted by Mr T. Rimmer, entertained the crowds. This show was by no means confined to the exhibits of the cottagers, although most of the old Formby names appear in the list of prize winners. The Home Art and Industrial Exhibition was still held in the school, but this section seems to have been linked with the show later and may be the forerunner of the cake making and crafts and the various exhibits which now appear in the modern flower show in the children's tent. The brewing of beer in Formby continued at the brewery of Dickinson and Rimmer in Brewery Lane until about 1920, when they sold out to Tetley's. There was another brewery behind the Royal Hotel, which had the odd name of the Reciprocity Brewery. This business was sold to Threlfalls in 1896. Whippet races used to take place behind the Royal Hotel. The inn at Cross Green, the Cross House Inn, was the house of Thomas Dickinson, father of Mary Neal of the Lifeboat Inn in Berkey Lane, and grandfather of William Dickinson of the Railway Hotel. By 1908, it had been replaced by the Blundell Arms. The Grapes Hotel in Green Lane was opened about 80 years ago. It still has stables and a mounting block, and behind the hotel there used to be a running track where sprinters were trained for the Powder Hall Handicap. Two rows of poplars marked the track. The Freshfield Hotel in Massams Lane, like the Bay Horse, was first a cottage where beer was sold, and later the premises were enlarged and modernised. The most recent addition to this sizeable list of public houses and inns is the Pinewoods in Wicks Lane on the Harrington Estate. In the early days of the century, Formby had the distinction of being the most drunken township in the whole licensing division. The native population, however, claimed that this was entirely due to the close proximity of the army camp at Altka. Cockling has been mentioned several times in this history. It was still being carried on at the beginning of the present century, a well-known cockler being John Jackson, or Cockle Jack, who carried shrimps and cockles around the cottages and houses. He lived in Cockle Lane, now called Coronation Avenue. A strong man over six feet tall, he used to walk regularly to Ainsdale to sell his catch. It was his habit to go shoeless, with his feet wrapped in cloth in order to negotiate the sandy paths. For many years in this century, the cockles almost disappeared from the shore, but rumour says that they are again on the increase. Neither fishing nor cockling can, however, be claimed as a major industry in Formby nowadays. 
There was at one time a firm belief that Formby would soon be a booming oil town. There had been many reports of oil lying on top of the water in the ditches from William Camden onwards, and as far back as 1880, exploratory borings had been made. More trial borings were made in March 1939, and after some initial failure, a yield was obtained from borings on the moss. Oil wells were then sunk and began a small but steady production. These wells contributed over a million and a half gallons to Pluto, the pipeline which supplied oil from the Liberation Army in Europe during the war. The steady yield from the wells led the Darcy Exploration Company to believe that the oil was seeping from a much larger source of supply. But efforts to locate this source by borings failed, and in 1966, drilling was proving uneconomic and was abandoned. Formby still shows no sign of becoming an industrial area, although an industrial zone has been established on the eastern side of the bypass. This new road was built in 1937 to facilitate transport between Liverpool and Southport, so that through traffic could avoid the narrow road which wound its way through the village and then on past Formby Hall to Ainsdale. It is possible to appreciate the nature of these early roads when one travels between Formby and Ormskirk over the moss from Altka, for this road has not yet suffered by being straightened. However, it is on a section of this latter route that the industrial zone has been located. Not more than half a dozen firms have so far settled here. Engineering firms and motor salesmen for the most part. Formby itself also has a few family businesses garages, small bakeries and household servicing businesses are scattered unobtrusively about the township, though there is a tendency now for these to be taken over by multiple firms offering cut prices. The Hermit of Ravenmeals. Until a few years ago, anyone approaching the shore from the end of Range Lane in the south of Ravenmeals and climbing over the higher sand hill would have been accosted by an advance guard of mongrel dogs protesting at the intrusion. Then a wisp of smoke would be seen curling from a chimney which projected from some sheets of corrugated iron. Below this makeshift roof was a homemade shack of unbelievable construction. Here lived Bill Tasker, well known to regular visitors to the shore as the hermit. Sometimes he would come out of his hut and call his dogs, Micah, Boo Boo and Petula Clark, to order, and if the visitor looked friendly, he would pass a casual remark about the weather. Sometimes he might even invite his visitor into his rough home. It was cosy and warm inside, for he had a stove in which he burnt wood collected from the shore. Bill Tasker had taken refuge there after, after service in the First World War, having decided to retire from a civilization which he strongly disliked. A Liverpool man, he retreated to the peace of the Formby Sandhills and contrived to live there in the hut which he built for himself out of the flotsam and jetsam of the sea. He was an amiable character with a fondness for the sea, for wildlife and for music and literature. He had a small supply of his favourite authors, Shakespeare, Wells, Burns and strangely P.G. Wodehouse. The book he most prized was W.H. Davis's Autobiography of a Supertramp. He had a radio so that he could listen to the BBC orchestral and vocal concerts. 
His possessions were limited to his books, his radio, his stove, an oil lamp, a brass plaque, which read, bless this house, and his dogs, which congregated round the hut and shared his food. Every Saturday morning he went shopping to the grocers and the chemists and the post office in Elson Road, where I suspect he was well looked after by the shopkeepers. Later he lived very well on the old age pension. One of his hobbies was to look after the birds which nested by the sea, and he rescued and cleaned up seabirds which had been polluted by oil on the shore. Mr Tasker died in 1965, regretted by many who knew him as an interesting character who did no one any harm and had the courage to act according to his beliefs. Leisure in a growing community. I feel a certain nostalgia on account of the disappearance of the Formby Prize Band. It used to practice in a hut in King's Road. At what time it played in public, I do not know, except that on Christmas morning it toured the streets and played Christmas carols with great verve. It also reported that there was once a Freshfield Prize Band too, which played in the SS Clan Macfy in the Mersey on the occasion of King George V's visit to Liverpool in 1934. These brass bands could be the earliest musical societies which existed in Formby. They have never been replaced. The opportunities for cultural activities of other kinds are now so many that it is impossible to mention all the interests and all the clubs and organisations involved. Until 30 years ago, activities of all kinds, sport, entertainment, and enlightenment were carried on in connection with the different churches. Even one of the two cinemas, the Queen's in Three Tons Lane, was opened in the premises of the Catholic Youth Club. The first independent, independent cultural societies were started in 1953. These were the Formby Society and the Town's Women's Guild. Both of them were started by groups of citizens seeking to meet people with similar interests to their own. Both advertised in the local paper for members and both have continued with increasing membership ever since. Art, French speaking, music, natural history, literature and history, particularly local history, have been studied in different groups by the Formby Society. And the society as a whole is committed to preserve the amenities of Formby and if possible, to, to prevent it from being absorbed into the neighbouring conurbation. It has also put up a hard fight with limited success for the preservation of historic buildings. The first Towns Women's Guild, with its varied activities, has now been joined by another which meets in Freshfield and is an afternoon guild. Since 1953, and especially in the last 10 years, societies have proliferated. There is the Theatre Club, and the Congregational Dramatic Society, an Artists' Association, a Choral Society, a Wine Society, a Photographic Society, a Chess Club, and many other smaller clubs which cater for special interests. In sport too, the pattern is the same. The Cricket Club began its life as early as 1856 and is still very active. The Golf Club was first formed in 1884 first clubhouse was built in 1897 and was burnt down in a fire, already described in 1899, and the present clubhouse was opened in 1901 by the Earl of Derby, then captain of the club. 
The tennis club too was founded apparently about the turn of the century and famous champions have occasionally played here. Holy Trinity Church has a tennis club and there are courts at the Formby High School and three public courts at the park in Duke Street. There are also ample opportunities provided for football with two major clubs, one with its own grounds and clubhouse, a junior sports club with 24 teams forming their own football league and a Sunday football league. A cycle rally is organised every year to, to train children in road sense and there are organised weekend sports for children. Hockey, bowls and badminton are also provided for. There is, however, always room for complaint and one complaint is that Formby has no swimming pool at the moment. It seems that in entertainment there is not so much to offer. The two cinemas opened in the early part of the century are closed. The Queen's is now a supermarket. The embassy at Freshfield became for a time a skating rink, as was very obvious to everyone from the number of citizens young and old to be seen with a limb in plaster. It too is closed. Perhaps the Formby atmosphere is more suited to cultural pursuits and the more active sports, though I believe it is possible to find a cabaret and I believe there is bingo to be had somewhere. Maybe the older folk are happy with their television and the younger ones enjoy themselves in smaller and less advertised groups. But with a population of over 23,000 still increasing, there is plenty of scope for anyone to start a new society for anything and succeed in attracting members. The Coastal Survey of 1966 a survey of the coast at Formby was made by the Lancashire County Council in 1966 with the object of investigating the means of improving the coastal area and creating there a coastal park. So once more in the history of Formby, the idea of Formby by the sea arose. The Formby coast was described in the survey as one of the most valuable recreational assets of Lancashire conveniently located for the use of a very large car-owning population and it was said to have considerable charm and scientific interest. The survey described the coast as the only one in South Lancashire where sea bathing was possible from a safe sandy beach, in that the authors showed a degree of optimism that was not then and is not now justified. A count was made of the use of the coast and of the traffic bringing people to the shore at weekends. A Sunday was chosen when weather conditions were ideal for visitors and it was found that about 10,000 people visited the area, 8,121 cars arriving, 499 on scooters and bicycles and approximately 900 arriving by train at Formby and Freshfield stations who walked to the shore down Lifeboat Road and Victoria Road. At the shore end of these two roads, the main access roads to the sea, most of the visitors congregated, while a few went further south to Alexandra Road and Albert Road, so that the use of the shore was confined to a relatively small area. The report considered that more and better access roads were needed. The railway line bisects the town from north to south so that visitors in cars are restricted to the roads where the line is crossed over the bridge at Kirklake Road leading to Lifeboat Road and Victoria Road and Raven Mills Lane 
both of which had level crossings. More car parks were advocated, and since there were no basic facilities, the provision of toilets was essential, while first aid posts and refreshment bars, perhaps mobile ones, were also necessary. The report also proposed the making of picnic areas in the dunes behind the shore and games areas in the disused asparagus beds. The two caravan sites already established, one of which was of a high standard, were mentioned, and it was thought that another one in the southern part of the shore should be provided. Footpaths were recommended to link the different features and to pass over the dunes to the sea. The survey decided that sand winning, the taking away of sand by industrial firms, should still be allowed but controlled and asparagus growing was to be resolved in consultation with the growers, whatever that may mean. The tipping of tobacco waste, already permitted until 1974, was also to be controlled and vegetation was to be planted in the area where this took place. Access to the beach was seen to be the chief difficulty and the survey therefore proposed the improvement of Range Lane and the building of a distributor road and five connecting roads with a car park at the end of each road. The cost of the scheme was estimated at something like £100,000. There was, as one would expect, considerable opposition to this scheme from the residents of Formby, especially those living near to or on the routes to the shore. The main ground for opposition was the total inadequacy of the road through Formby for coping with the large numbers of cars envisaged and it was thought that the River Alt would have to be bridged nearer to its outlet. So far, however, apart from the large car park built at the end of Victoria Road by the National Trust, which acquired land from near the Golf Club in the north to Wicks Lane in the south, and another car park built beside Lifeboat Road, Nothing has been done to carry out this scheme. So, like the Formby by the Sea proposals of a century ago, the project has been shelved. In 1965, the Nature Reserve was established in the north of the Dune area from Ainsdale to Formby, and the land so acquired has been used to form an area where the natural wildlife can be protected and encouraged. Nature trails are marked out along the paths through the woods and beside the slacks and the road across the railway and down Fisherman's Path to the sea provides a very interesting and attractive walk. But this protection of the birds, flowers, trees and animals can only be achieved by restricting people to the established paths. Further south, the National Trust land was bought in 1967 and its very large car park has helped to solve the parking problem for visitors to the shore. Meanwhile, the shore at the southern end of the district, especially to the south of, of Lifeboat Road, becomes more unsightly every year. Attempts have been made several times, first by the Formby Society and later by other groups to clear away the litter, broken glass, tin cans and plastic packages but it is an impossible task. In addition to the litter left behind by careless visitors, the sea deposits its quota at the high tide mark every day. Much of it has been thrown overboard by ships and washed up at Formby. 
This, as well as the oil which pollutes the sand, makes a visit to this part of the shore something of a hazard. The trampling of people over the sand hills is fast removing them altogether, and planting of star grass seems to have ceased here, so that the defences against the sea are crumbling. Since the council has no right of access to the shore, as it is privately owned, nothing is done. Huge sand hills have been removed for use in industry, so that apart from the from the destruction of an area which should be a valuable amenity to the whole of South Lancashire, there could be created a situation whereby flooding could occur if the sea and the wind together were to cause a breach in the sand hills. The only logical course seems to be to follow the example of the nature reserve and restrict access to the shore over the sand hills to certain paths, replant the star grass on the damaged dunes and plant trees in the settled dunes behind the coast. In this way, the shore could become a most attractive place for visitors and the dunes could once more provide a home for the flowers, birds and other wildlife native to this coast. The last chapter. Let us look at our Viking village as we see it today. The village street is full of newcomers. The pavements are blocked with prams and the roads with cars. The countryside has vanished from our doorsteps. The shore is dirty and fouled by oil. Supermarkets have displaced most of the old family businesses. Thatched cottages have given way to modern semi-detached houses with central heating and double garage. Two large car parks near the village street are still not sufficient to meet the need for car space. A new sewerage scheme has been started and a new scheme for the modernisation and extension of the shopping area with a traffic-free village street is underway and the older residents shake their heads and say, Formby isn't like it used to be. But there is still a sense of community, of belonging somewhere. There are still Rimmers and Norrises and Aindos and Suttons in plenty and people still gossip in little groups on the broad pavements of the village street. The young people are lively and the babies are bonny and the trees and the gardens are lovely in spring. We are naturally a little afraid of the changes that are coming. Will the new local government organisation destroy the feeling of identity in this community? Will we find in 1973 that we are back again in 1890 under the rule of a large council that knows nothing and cares less for the feelings and the traditions of the people or for the amenities and history of the town. Formby Podcast is an independent production. It comes to you free. If you'd like us to tell your story or you know of a story, contact us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.